ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And then if you turn them round, males have a big round butt. Around the tail is a red patch and then out from there you get purple and lilac and blue. All of this in a great big circle. When you're choosing dessert... And they also have extremely colourful genitalia. Oh. Anyway, when you're choosing dessert, do you go for the prettiest one or the biggest? So if you look at other animals like apes or monkeys, they have pretty small butts. The gluteus maximus is, of course, the largest muscle in the human body. It's the muscle that you're probably sitting on right now. And in humans, it's especially enlarged. Welcome to What the Duck, I'm Ann Jones, and whatever you and your enlarged gluteus maximus are doing right now, you should feel proud. Your buns are unique in the animal kingdom. But seriously though, butts. What the hell are they good for? And I'm not talking about your anus, I, I have an idea what that's for. I'm talking about your cheeks, your peaches, your cakes, your derriere. What is it there for? If you hold your butt while you're walking around the room, you'll see it's just nothing's happening, right? Professor Dan Lieberman from Harvard University wants you to hold your own butt. He's spent decades studying the human body and what each bit of it is actually doing, including butts. And I'm talking here about the big gluteus maximus muscle. As I go walking when you walk, your gluteus maximus doesn't really do very much. It's pretty much inactive. But if you start running, with every step, the gluteus maximus fires just before your foot hits the ground. And what it's primarily doing is it's preventing your trunk from falling forward. So it's a stabilizer. Like eggs in a cake, the gluteus maximus works along with a whole heap of adaptations in your body. The ability to swivel your head and to stabilize so you don't get dizzy, for example. Animals like pigs don't have that ability, and Dan knows, because he studied them running on treadmills. We also have Achilles tendons that are incredibly elastic and a reinforced skeleton for impact. But the big glute is the ingredient that binds it all together to make the perfect two-legs-good cake. It's really not particularly important for walking, but it's a critical feature in humans that makes us uh, really good at running. Now speak for yourself. The earliest creatures in the human lineage were bipedal. Bipedal, walking on just two legs. But had small brains, and big brains came much, much, much later in human evolution. So bipedalism really set us off on a new trajectory when we diverged from the apes probably sometime around 7 million years ago. And we started off as walkers, right? So we were both walkers and tree climbers. And running, endurance running especially, didn't really come along until about 2 million years ago. And when we go back to the gluteus maximus, we can actually tell that because the gluteus maximus leaves a trace on the pelvis. So we can actually see that pelvises starting around 1.92 million years ago have this enlarged gluteus maximus. But the ones that we have from before that had tiny ape-like butts. Tiny eight butts. Not a contender in the best butt competition. Given that brains about the size of modern humans only came about around 200,000 years ago, our big butts came 1.5 million years before that. And before that, there was a period of time before 
our glutes became majestic, that we were both dumb and couldn't run very far or fast. That's for sure. Actually, we're, we're still not very fast. You know, when you have only two legs, you know, it's like having a car with half the cylinders of another car, right? You can only produce half the amount of power as if, if you had four legs. So as soon as we became bipeds, we became slow and we became awkward. So why become bipedal then? Maybe to reach things in trees? Or to see over tall people at concerts? Or was it about the amount of energy that it takes to move? Chimpanzees, and those are our closest ancestors, which are, are knuckle walkers. So we put oxygen masks on chimpanzees. And put them on a treadmill. And they spend twice as much energy moving a kilo of their body, a meter, as most animals, including us. And so we think that bipedalism, the first big benefit of bipedalism was to save energy for these early ancestors of ours during a period when the rainforests in Africa were breaking up, right? So animals like our ancestors, who were in the margins of forests, you know, maybe in woodland habitats or something like that, they had to travel much farther every day to get the food that they needed. And if you can save many calories by being bipedal, that might have been a big advantage for those creatures, but at a cost. And the cost was being slow and awkward. Sometimes you see an assertion around that says that becoming bipedal, that is, walking on two legs, was the first iteration of what was to become, over evolutionary time, Bluetooth headsets. Tool use has a great romantic air of evolution about it, doesn't it? And the argument would be that two legs allowed us to have our hands free to manipulate tools and carry things at the same time as moving. The bow and arrow was invented only 100,000 years ago. Putting a sharp point on a stick was invented maybe 500,000 years ago, but we know our ancestors were hunting big animals by two million years ago. So how did they do it? They got big butts. This is Dan Lieberman's hypothesis, that we became long-distance running specialists so that we could eat lots of meat. Persistence hunting involves chasing animals, and you don't chase them super fast because you can't, because they're going to run faster than you do. But the big advantage of humans is that we can run long distances, but we don't overheat. So what you can do is you can take an, an animal, right, and then track it and chase it and track it and chase it and track it and chase it. It's like a dance, right? Eventually, that animal, its body temperatures can go up and up and up and up, and eventually go into a state of heat stroke, and it's now easy pickings. So our big butt muscle, switching on momentarily with each running step to stop you from falling forward, that is one of the things that make us human and successful as well as our ability to sweat. And that is the story of why we have such incredibly spacious rumpass rooms. But we're not the only ones with fanny packs loaded to the zipper with utility. For some other species, though, it's less about movement and more about using your butt as a billboard. During my PhD, which was quite a long time ago, I took a lot of photographs of butts. It sort of sounds like something that should have mandatory reporting attached to it. But no, it's just Joe Setchell, Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Durham in the UK, doing groundbreaking butt research. Actually, hundreds and hundreds of photographs. And this was at the time when you still had to get the film from the camera and print it. And then... I printed them out and I drew round them because I wanted to know the area of the butt so that I could compare it and discover that males with big butts are more dominant over males who have small butts. Colourful too. It is really weird. Wait, 
Did I say that Joe is talking about taking photos of mandrel butts? Most mammals just don't do colour. Most mammals are quite drab looking, but then in the primates you get some really colourful animals. And they genuinely have some of the most, I cannot believe I'm saying this, some of the most wonderfully vibrant asses on earth. It's like a butt beauty pageant. So let's go through some of the Mrs and Mr Butt of the Universe contestants. Mandrels are a very large species of monkey. If you've seen The Lion King, Rafiki, the spiritual advisor to the king and the one who lifts baby Simba up on the rock, he's meant to be a mandrel. So they're about the size of a big dog. They have very brightly coloured faces. And then if you turn them round, males have a big round butt that looks like a target. So around the tail is a red patch and then out from there, purple and lilac and blue, all of this in a great big circle. And they also have extremely colourful genitalia. Good to know. Uh, Their colourful face and butt and genital skin is truly out of this world. Another phrase I never thought I'd say. But why do such colourful peach cheeks exist at all? The butt is brightly coloured in all of the animals, but it's most brightly coloured in the alpha male. The more brightly coloured his butt, the higher his testosterone is. And so if you are another male, if you see a brightly coloured butt, then you know that that male is dominant and probably quite scary and probably quite willing to get into a fight with you. And um, seeing as you brought it up, I have to ask what colour their genitals are. (laughs) So in a highly coloured male, his penis will be bright red and his balls will be lilac. Lilac balls! Yeah, I almost said very impressive and then I stopped myself because (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) If you're a mandrel, it's very impressive. And then there's the gelada, an animal that absolutely looks like a staunch bulldog in a glam rock meets bikini competition. Yeah, it, it's like they, they went to the dressing up shop and got everything, basically. They're crazy looking. They have huge teeth like mandrels have. They have this really long fur. They have colourful bottoms, red bottoms, and they have this hourglass shape patch on their chest, which is also bright red in some males. They're sometimes called bleeding heart monkeys, but why have they gone for the twin set of bright butt and boobs? Yeah, so they shuffle on their bottoms hmm. most of the time. So geladas eat grass. They're the only primate to eat grass. And because there's grass everywhere, there's no point in standing up to move over to the next bit because you can just shuffle along on your bum and find some more grass. So this shuffle butt gait of sort of moving yourself along... Does that mean that their wonderful butt is hidden? It does, yeah, and that might be why they have the chest patch that they have. If you spend all day sitting on your butt, then anything you want to signal through your butt, like, for example, dominance in males or perhaps fertility in females, any signal is just being signalled to the grass that you're sitting on and no one else gets to see it. So that's probably why they have chest patches, because they can also signal on their chest patch. So in our butt beauty pageant, I'd like to announce the gelada as the winner of the swimsuit section for turning up in a matching red bikini.
They may also want world peace, which I understand is a pageant prerequisite, what with being largely vegetarians and also having quite peaceful relationships with Ethiopian wolves, but that is another story for another time. Not butt-related. Then there's the lesula. Quite frankly, this monkey looks like it's seen some things. I mean, it probably has. It only became known to Western science in 2007. I think the thing that you're most interested in is that it has blue testicles. Literal blue balls. But also a big blue bottom. It's bright blue. It's icy blue. It's like frozen, but on a butt. It is, exactly. So one of the interesting things about the blue that you find in lesula and in mandrels and in other, some other primate species is it's really hard to photograph. It's not a pigment. It's something to do with the way light hits collagen in the skin and is bounced back to our eyes. Yeah, the colour blue in nature is almost as weird as using your ass cheeks to avoid fights and solve neighbourhood disputes like these primates do. And what's even weirder is that when they die, the blue fades to white, like the soul leaving the buttocks. So I've never seen a live lesula. I would love to see what colour blue they are. And the final contestant in our Bartacular beauty pageant is the crested macaque, a smallish macaque, maybe the size of a Boston Terrier. And the monkey itself is black, beautiful black. But the buttocks? Oh no. Crazy, huge, bright red butts that look like they've been inflated. So at least in the females, at particular times of the female cycle, they have these, almost like that somebody's put a big red cushion on their butts. I googled it and the safe search kicked in. It's not just a pillow. It looks as if a hemorrhoid pillow got an infection, swelled up to the size of a pool floaty and then stuck itself to a butt. I've seen it used as a Valentine's card, so sometimes they come <gasps> like a heart. <laughs> I have never, ever seen anything less romantic than these butts. Over the years, you've looked at lots of butts. Um, does it make you appreciate the human butt in a different way? <laughs> Do you know, I've never asked myself that question. I've asked lots of other questions, but not that one. <laughs> But it's true, right? Our butts are special too. We might not have multicoloured bums signalling our relationship status, but we do have a bum that allows us to stand up and run on two legs, something that no other animal can do, right? There are other animals that are bipedal out there. Wrong. Dan Lieberman. But there are no other animals that are bipedal the way we are. In fact, you know, it was it Aristotle, I can't remember who it was, who, who said that humans are, are not the only bipeds, but we're the only featherless, tailless, striding bipeds, right? I looked it up. It was Plato. And, and you know, we are unique in that respect, and it's clearly played an important role in our evolutionary history. So even though our butts might be special, we're not the only ones that can move using just two legs. Evolution is... It's messy. <laughs> and this is Dr. Peter Bishop, by the way, from the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard in the US, despite what his accent says. Lizards are the only modern reptiles that engage in any bipedalism. They can, if they're threatened or if they're evading a predator or something like that, they can rear up onto their hind legs and run away. And some of them can do that for quite a long distance. So like the, the frilled neck lizard, for instance, can run on its hind legs 
pretty much indefinitely, as, as long as it needs to. It, it's, it's quite good at doing that. And there are other famous Australians who are bipeds. Skippy. I study hopping. Perfect. Because how in the hell is hopping a sensible way to move around? And I mean, does all that jumping impact the kangaroo buttocks? Lauren Thornton is a PhD student from the University of the Sunshine Coast who is currently spending her days dissecting wallaby legs. A lot of the time they're quadrupedal or pentapedal. That's four or even five-legged. Because the tail really counts as a leg. That's in their slow gait, but yeah, when they're moving fast, they're bipedal. They are really, kangaroos are really good at hopping, so they're sort of really awkward when they're crawling around. That's why they have to use their tail to help propel them. This slow pentapedal crawl is a really energy inefficient way of moving. But when they speed up, they start this incredible motion of sprawings and biomechanical circles. But why on earth do they do that? Why hop to get around? It's really efficient. So there's a certain speed. They reach that speed. They are more efficient than quadrupedal animals. The cost of transport increases usually as your speed increases. Imagine a dog sprinting. It's using more energy the faster it tries to go. But with kangaroos, once they start hopping, it flattens out. So it doesn't increase at all. And this is, I think, a kangaroo superpower. Once they start hopping, it takes the same amount of energy, basically, no matter how fast they try to go. So what's the trick? The Achilles is enormous. (laughs) It's about the thickness of your finger, which is just absurd. In a big kangaroo, it's basically half the length of the tibia. The tibia is the really long bone in their leg. Their whole system is set up to get the most stress and energy out of that Achilles tendon as they can. So they become airborne, lifting, tucking, pushing legs forward. So they land, and we call that the stance phase. They land right on their tiptoes, and then they start to crouch their ankle. So their body weight is doing a lot of the work then to stretch that tendon. Like stretching a lackey band ready to let it jet off. The tendon is getting stretched in large part by gravity acting on body mass. So the roux doesn't have to expend much energy at all to reload its sproingers. They're weird. Kangaroos are weird. (laughs) Well, why are you studying them? Is it because they're weird? Yeah, so it was this energy efficiency thing. But there's, there's probably something unique to the hopping gait because we don't see this in any other animals. Just big hopping animals that can flatten out this cost. Similar to the marathon hypothesis with our butt muscles and our special long-distance gait, the bipedal hopping kangaroos have come up with a way to cover long distances with as little energetic cost as possible. So it does beg the question, what are their butts like? The butt is just enormous. (laughs) Is it? Oh, it's huge. It's so uh, funny, right? I see kangaroos every day and I have never noticed that they have really big butts. So... Everything around their pelvis is all muscle. It's just muscle on top of bone. There's no fat on a kangaroo pretty much at all. It's something that gym bunnies can only dream of, becoming a jimbaroo. Butts are funny, inherently. It's a very odd body part of ours that can cause so much humour, desire, political trouble, 
and it doesn't really have a proper name. I mean, maybe buttocks comes close, but for all the other bits of our bodies we commonly refer to with naughty nicknames, we also have anatomically correct names. Breasts, penis, vulva. But the queen mum is both amorphous and completely identifiable as one thing. The fact that our big perky butts are one of the reasons that we're so successful in standing up and walking away so that others can view our assets, it really feeds into our sense of exceptionalism. We always like to think of our brains as the biggest, our steps as the most sure on this earth. But when it comes to bipedalism, we have competition. Well, if you look at it this way, there is one species of human and 10,000 species of birds. So who's more successful? Peter Bishop. The fact that they were ancestrally bipedal, they inherited their way of getting around from their ancestors, the extinct dinosaurs. That's something Peter knows a fair bit about because what he does for work is try and figure out how dinosaurs would have moved by making birds run down racetracks and filming them. Brush turkeys, ostriches, button quail. So, yeah, he's in a good position to talk about the parson's nose. That is, bird butts. Yes, yes. The muscles... Uh, that comprise the backside, they are different in a sense because birds and humans have evolved from different ancestors. And so the the anatomical machinery that they had at their disposal was different to begin with. But fundamentally, for birds, the, the muscles that are most important are probably more the hamstring muscles. So the muscles that oh. uh, run down the back of the thigh. The running drumsticks. I'm going to strike them off the magnificent butt list then. In my search for other bipedal animals that may have absolutely fine asses like we do, I've been searching around many different scientific papers and I understood at least two. Bipedalism has evolved several times. Octopuses can do a version of it where the other legs are pretending to be a coconut shell. Pangolins can be bipedal. Who else? Lizards and cockroaches use wide trackways. Cockroaches walk on two legs. It's like Animal Farm, but less a comment on imperialism and more in the horror movie genre. Yeah, when cockroaches um, need to accelerate, sometimes they just rear up on their hind legs like a, like a kid on a bicycle, right, and roar away on their two legs. They do a wheelie and get the hell out of there. In fact... They can travel at 1.5 metres a second. As they go faster and faster, legs lift up off the ground and their body lifts up to an angle of 23 degrees, like they'd really open the outboard on the tinny. The pairs of legs on cockroaches are all shaped differently and they're different lengths too. The back ones have the biggest potential stride length and are the most powerful. These back legs pump at a similar frequency that wings would beat in flight. And if the roach was trying to do that with all six legs, well, that's a lot of computational work and coordination for the cockroach brain to achieve. Better with just the two. It's not obligate bipedalism. You don't see cockroaches strolling along on two legs uh, casually. It's a very transient, intermittent behaviour that they do. When they do run, they're... Guinness Book of World Records fast, and researchers in Berkeley found that the metabolic cost of going, like the cock clappers, was very, very low for these two legs good cockroaches. True athletes. And where there's a fast animal, 
you best believe that Australians will try to race it. Well, a lot of people might think that this is completely ridiculous. Yeah, cockroach racing is a thing. Memorial plaque next month for the racing cockroach destructor who gave his life a sport. This from the ABC archives in 1981. And he's on the line now. Good morning to you, Mr Flower. Good morning, Carolyn. Yes, I wasn't quite, strictly speaking, his trainer. Were you not? No, I'm the trainer of most of the racing lizards in Australia. Yes. Brian, I'm wondering, uh, would it be too painful for you at all to take us back over those uh, sad events immediately following the race? Destructo was streaked away, ran round in circles for a while, and then uh, literally streaked across, across the finishing line. What oh. happened thereafter, of course, is now history. The uh, Sydney handlers were so overjoyed to see that their cockroach had beaten a world-famous racing lizard. They were jumping up and down, raced in to grab him because they were going to take him back here, of course, and use him for stud purposes. In the confusion, one of them unfortunately trod on him, and so ended the, uh, the tale of Destructo. You just never know what you're trying to hit with a thong. It could be a marvel of the natural world. It could be a miracle creature that works on the edge of physics. It could be a fellow bipedal being. What the Duck is a production of ABC RN and ABC Science. I'm Ann Jones and Patria Ladgrove and I produce this program from Wadawurrung and Ghana country while sitting on magnificent, oversized human butts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.